Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Adventures in VHS podcast, a movie podcast dedicated to the lost format of VHS, where I take a look at one of the ex-rental tapes that once adorned the shelves of my local video rental store back in the 1980s. Uh, The podcast allows me to get all misty-eyed about the era and the format that was so important to me growing up as a kid and is is pretty heavily responsible for my love of movies as a result. Uh, But it also acts as support to the Adventures in VHS book that I'm currently writing and expecting to have done next year. So for those of you who are new to the show, it basically consists of me talking about the history of one individual movie before looking in closer detail at its original big box VHS release, absorbing the artwork and the trailers that go before the feature presentation, and then getting into a review of the movie itself. Uh, At this point, to close the show, I would usually then get into an interview section where I'd talk to one of the people involved with the film about its making and also what the format of VHS meant to them as a director, producer, etc, etc. However, this month I'm afraid to say that while I was pursuing a few different avenues uh, around uh, potential interviews, there were various sort of scheduling conflicts that made it a little bit difficult to lock someone down in the end for the show. Um, I'm still very much hoping that these interviews will come off in future episodes, so I won't say exactly who it is that I was talking to. However, uh, as the show was already running late, I really just wanted to get another one out there so that I didn't kind of lose momentum and leave people hanging around too long. Uh, So for the third episode of Adventures in VHS, there won't be an interview. However, I will be doing a double bill. Uh, So it'll be two movies for this episode, two movies with a very similar theme from my collection, but done in very different ways. First up there is Devouring Waves, Lamberto Barva's 1984 mutant shark movie that also goes by the name Devilfish. And this will be followed by Monster, the 1980 Roger Corman classic known to, to US audiences as Humanoids from the Deep. So, without further ado, let's get ready to adjust our tracking as we fire up the VCR and take a look at the first entry in our Sea Creature Double Bill. Okay, so I hold in my hand a copy of Devouring Waves. This is the 1984 Medusa home video release of Devouring Waves. And first things first, I have to say, this is in impeccable condition. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful hand-painted cover uh, of, a, of a sunrise, uh, sorry, a sunset with the beautiful water and the the devil fish, if you like, uh, coming through the waves and uh, and devouring someone. So so there you go, devouring waves. Um, as I say, the cover is beautiful. It's in perfect condition. The which is great considering this is you know the original release from what twenty eight years ago, um, and on the back we've got devouring waves plus the the, the little blurb which I'll read to you now. Then in nineteen eighty two off the coast of Madagascar a prehistoric sea creature was landed, believed to be extinct for over seven hundred thousand years. It set the scientific world ablaze with speculation. Now Florida, crowded beaches in high season. An experienced diver disappears. Boats are savagely attacked. The victims instantly killed. The bodies badly mutilated. Shark attack. Or is it? Without a question mark. Devouring waves. Dot, dot, dot. You may never want to swim in the sea again. Running time, 90 minutes approximately, which I really like. I love the fact that this film is 90 minutes. That bodes very well indeed. I love all movies that are 90 minutes long. Um... So yeah, this is the box. It's in a, a very, it's in a sort of like pale grey, uh, sort of off-white pale grey kind of box. And opening it up, um, I can see that it is actually the original box that I've got here as well because it's got the uh, the Medusa, the Medusa logos embossed on the inside, uh, on the inside left panel. Um, strangely, it's got both the Medusa logos. It's got the uh, Medusa Pictures logo, which sort of has a little slice of thirty-five millimeter film. Um, and it's got the Medusa home video logo, which is the, the sort of the more iconic um, image of the Medusa head. Um, looking at the actual tape itself, I can tell that, that it's in excellent condition. There's you know there's a couple of coded uh, stickers on there, um, but you know it doesn't look like it's kind of had a. It doesn't look like it's had much of a life as a rental, uh, which is great. Um, and the other thing I should mention is I did buy this from a trader on the uh, on the on the forum. 
Um, and this particular trader, I bought a couple of tapes off him, and they both arrived in excellent condition. And also, uh, when you when I opened up each of the boxes, there was a little packet of silica gel inside, which I thought was just genius. I love the fact that somebody has gone to the trouble of going out and buying loads of packets of silica gel and putting a, a little, you know, a little package of each in each one of his tapes. I assume. Um, and yeah, the fact that he kind of sent that with it was just, I just really, really liked that, I really appreciated it. Um, so yes, Devouring Waves, we'll just get the box out of the way there, I'm just going to pop this on and we'll take a look at the trailers. Okay, so first off we've got the lovely Medusa video ident, which is, uh, is a cracking little ident. Medusa Communications Limited. And then strangely we get the copyright warning which you would usually get on a tape like this, but rather than just come up on the screen as it as it usually would, it kind of pops up in a weird sort of like checkered, um almost PowerPoint presentation esque style, which is uh is interesting. I have no problem with them trying to make the copyright logo a little uh, sorry, the copyright warning a little bit more um a little bit sexier. Um, and there it, it goes away again in exactly the same fashion. And we move on to the Medusa preview, as I'm being told, which is a very nice way of putting it. First up, an 18 trailer for an 18 film, Sloan. How did you find it? A lover. You're crazy, Sloan. Okay, so this is basically a movie about an absolute badass called Sloan. Yeah, he likes to have sex with women and throw men through glass tables, which is great. Um, for justice. Looks like. You see her? I want her back. You got that? Yeah. Looks like his girlfriend has been um, abducted by Colombian drug lords. Um, this probably won't do any good. Most of which it looks like are played by um, by non-union actors who were probably severely hurt during the film. Um, reminds me a lot of Striker, actually, which is another tape I've got on my shelf over there. I own that car. Kick him in the face, Sloan. Nice. That's good, yeah. We're in some deep shit here. It's no game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He just bit the head off a cobra. That just happened. He just bit the head off a cobra. So it looks pretty action packed. This there's lots of decent stunts, there's lots of explosions, there's lots of one-liners. It's got pretty much everything that you want from a movie like this. I think. I don't like being pushed, Pete. You know that. You can forget the law. It's even got its own sort of Cosby Show soundtrack, which is great. Slow. He picks up where the law leaves off. Brilliant. He picks up where the law leaves off. That's a great line. Uh, yeah, I could very well be checking that out, actually. Next up on the Medusa preview, we've got another 18-rated movie. Um, another 18-rated trailer, apparently. They're coming! The rats are coming! Oh, the rats are coming. Thousands of them! That's... They'll overrun us all! Rats. Rats. What do they want from us? I have no idea. Rats. Yes. Why are they man's enemy? I don't know that either. Rats. Yes. They're watching. They're watching. Why do rats repel us? What is it about those little furry bodies that's so frightening? Just think of them close to you in the night. Now, this looked different to, uh, yeah, this is Rats Night of Terror. I actually have another tape which I'm reaching for here on Guild Home Video, Who could stop them? Um, which is called The Rats, which Rats is based on, um, Under our based on a novel by James Gordon. This, this looked quite different. Millions. Their little red eyes gleaming with rage and hunger, <laughs> and they are waiting for you. See, I've never had a. Uh, I never find. I've never found rats scary. I used to have a pet rat, and I actually quite like rats. So, the idea of them being used in a sort of horrific sense doesn't, doesn't usually work for me. If I'm being completely honest. 
because this is your night of terror. Here come the, fuck is that? the rats. Directed by Vincent Dawn, which, if nothing else, is a cracking name. Um, and that's that. We move on to the next movie in the Medusa preview. Another 18 trailer for an 18 film, and yes, the uh, the old New World Pictures logo. We're gonna go after the prom to Keith's father's private island resort this weekend. I become a man. Shoot the picture. Okay, it's a very 80s MTV style trailer for a movie. Okay, they're going to a prom, from what I can gather. Stranded alone on an island in the Pacific, and I somehow, oh, wet t shirt. Um, they were going to a prom and they got stranded on an island. And this particular island is populated by an armed band of smugglers who are trying to kill them. Um, so, obviously, their natural first instinct is to just have sex with each other. Uh, which, yeah, that's, that's perfectly feasible. I don't want to die a virgin. Tragedy. We needed each other to survive. There's, there's lots of no, nubile young women in, uh, in vest t-shirts. Um, so that's, that's great. It's got a real nice uh, Ray Parker Jr. score. Lovely. Out of control. Coming soon from New World Pictures. Out of control. I could well check that out, actually. Out of control, directed by Alan Holzman. I could, yeah, that looks good. I'm interested. If only to find out where the hell this prom was supposed to be. And the final movie. Oh, this has got to be should. The night is their time. Yeah. And tomorrow, the only things living will be shunned. Cannibalistic. Humanoid. Underground. Underground. Dwellers. dwellers. From Friday at a cinema near you, see local press for details. What a strange thing to put on a rental tape. Um, why would they put from Friday? What Friday? It didn't even have a date. Um, Alright, so that was the trailers, and we're now into the movie Devouring Waves. Uh, the title card has just popped up, and the soundtrack is, is kicking in. Um, so yeah, after this short break, I'll leave you with the music for a while, but um, after this short break, we'll get into my review of Devouring Waves. These don't look like the teeth marks of a shark to me. It's not a shark. I think I can safely say that the creature found in your part of the ocean is a living fossil. The cells of this creature have a life of only eight months? Bob! There's something on the screen! See it? Yes. It might be him, but the picture isn't very clear. Look! Look! Attacked here. Now, dang thing just sits in that area. Be careful, Peter. It's getting too close. Go faster. So that was a clip from 1984's Devouring Waves, which is a movie that also goes by the names of Devilfish, Shark Rosso Nel Oceano, Monster Shark, Jaws Attack 2, Red Ocean, Shark Red on the Ocean, 
And finally, Apocalypse dans l'Ocean Rouge, which in French transla translates beautifully as Revelation in the Red Ocean. Uh, yeah, so this is a French-Italian co-production directed by Lambert Obava, son of the great Mario Obava, and the man behind films like Macabre and the uh, Demons movies. Uh, but Devouring Ways, as I will refer to it here because that's the name on the VHS box, stars Michael Sopcu, uh, Lawrence Morgan, and Cynthia Stewart. The film, it would appear, has been somewhat disowned by Lambert Obava, though, as it is, as it is branded as directed by John Old Jr., which is the pseudonym that he used on a number of his lesser films, including 1984's Blast Fighter and 1986's Midnight Killer. Um, it has a cast of Americans, Italians, and Latin Americans, um, among others, quite possibly, and they're all kind of speaking in their native tongue, uh, with the film redubbed in American later on. Uh, it's probably known to most people as being the subject of uh, Mystery Science Theatre 3000. Uh, they did a, a, an episode under the title of Devilfish, where obviously it got the, the inevitable usual ribbon from them. And as I record this podcast, the film is currently listed as number 62 in the IMDb list of the 100 worst films ever made. So, as uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, it's with great anticipation that I uh, that I approached watching it for the show. Um, in terms of plot, uh, it's just a relatively straightforward beast. Uh, early on, we discover that something fishy is going on in the in the waters surrounding the Florida coast, and a man turns up, sort of half munched, and is is rescued by the uh, by the uh, uh, the local sort of uh, rescue service there he's pulled off in a helicopter and you get to sort of see that his he's had his legs munched off which is a great effect actually to be fair they've obviously used a an amputee and, and just put a bit of blood on his legs there but that that works absolutely fine um but yeah the the local marine biology community sort of goes into overdrive at this point in trying to find out what's happening and get to the bottom of uh, of this sea creature and the the apparent um, the apparent plot that's that's kind of going on behind that. Uh, so yeah, the main part of this uh, marine biology community is uh, at the earlier stages of the film, at least, is is three people. Uh, there's Bob, who's played by Lawrence Morgan, uh, who's kind of a wild-eyed and slightly crusty scientist who uh, who discovers a bizarre noise out at sea uh, around the time that the first body is found. It's right underneath us. I know. Yeah, that's Bob. Uh, there's also Stella, uh, his luscious assistant, who also happens to be a dolphin whisperer. I just don't understand what happened to those dolphins. And then there's Peter, who's the technology guy who knows the ocean like the back of his hand, or the back of whatever girl he's managed to con into his bedroom that night. If you think I'm doing this because Stella has a cute little ass, that's exactly right. So they all set off into the big blue to find this mysterious fish and get to the bottom of whatever's at the bottom of the water, uh, using all the latest Commodore 64 graphics and reel-to-reel -reel recording equipment. Uh, but there are certain moments of high drama that sort of infiltrate the plot at this time. Peter, I'm not getting a signal from boy number four anymore. Exactly. And um, before long, or should I say after long, they discover that the local big bad scientific research facility, who they team up with as they have Amiga 500 graphics and 8-track tapes, uh, has been dabbling with uh, with Mother Nature, and and as a result there's been the sort of re-emergence of this creature from thousands of years ago, or something along those lines. Um, I mean, the truth is I've seen this film twice now, and I'm still not entirely sure what the connection is is between the bad scientists and what's actually going on. Um, there's basically a big monster fish that isn't a shark and isn't an octopus and isn't quite a sharktopus, but it's millions of years old and it's killing people and somehow that's the fault of these evil scientists. Um, now, I know that they're evil scientists because two of them are having an affair behind one of their partner's backs, who also happens to be the boss of the science project, uh, and they're employing some, they appear to be employing some bloke who looks like uh, American and part Cherokee comedian Rich Hall to harass and murder people who are sort of involving themselves and trying to find out more about it. Um, the first of these instances is when uh, American and part Cherokee comedian Rich Hall lets himself into some woman's house who is apparently a reporter who's ready to blow this story wide open. Uh, yeah, he lets himself into her house and, and you know, kills her. Uh, it's a bit of a shame, really, because 
a little bit later on in the film, you do start to wish that there was someone around to sort of blow the story open. Um, but anyway, he strangles her, then he puts her in the bath, then he plugs in a hairdryer, then he chucks it into the, the bath to electrocute her, then he unplugs the hairdryer, and he retrieves her wet knickers, as you do, and then sort of scrunches them up into a ball, plugs the hairdryer back in, and then puts the hairdryer back in the water, and then runs off like a kid who's been caught playing with matches. It's, it's quite a bizarre little murder sequence, actually. It, quite amusing um so yeah you've got this vague subplot that's going on where you've got the sort of sky the scientist scooby gang on one side who are off on their boat um doing what they're doing you've got the evil scientists uh, elsewhere sort of uh, doing whatever the fuck it is that they're doing frankly um there is also a new addition to the goodies uh scientist crew um they're all sort of on the boat listening to underwater vibrations and slipping off to secret islands for a bit of soft focus nookie when no one's watching but they have introduced a newbie to the team as well called janet uh, and she's been brought in especially by bob as she knows everything about marine life apparently except how to properly pronounce the word cretaceous this is the tylosaurus another awesome predator it appeared at the beginning of the cetaceous period it's pronounced cre Cretaceous. And it appeared at the end of the Cetaceous era. Cretaceous. Anyway, as the plot thinens, uh, they decide to call in the big guns to bring down the fish, including some very enthusiastic helicopter pilots. What's so special about a lousy fish? Well, I don't know. Seems like it's the only one of its kind. And it's around this point that Deputy Fernando Cortez, a background character who's frankly the single most awesome thing in the film, turns up and delivers one of his very best lines. By this point, at least eight different scientists and cops have been working around the clock to get to the bottom of these deaths and this apparent sea monster that's been sort of plaguing the plot for the last 60 minutes of the film. Uh, And they've done this for so long now that they've gotten to the point where they need to bring in helicopters to help kill it. And, And just at this point... Deputy Cortez turns up and says, Sheriff, I think there's a connection between these deaths and the monster's appearance. Brilliant. So the sheriff and the deputy are on the case on land. The scientists are on the case in the sea, uh, on the boat and in the lab as well. And we've even got people in the air and we haven't seen the fucking fish for at least half an hour. Luckily, at this point, Janet is wearing something a little bit skimpier and is being chased around by American and part Cherokee comedian Rich Hall, so we've got something to look at while the film lumbers sort of awkwardly towards its final act. Meanwhile, Janet and Bob, who are back on the boat, have been murdered both by the the, the fish and by Rich Hall, uh, which causes Stella and Peter to sort of stumble upon the body, uh, at which point Stella asks the question that's been on all of our minds... What's going on? I don't know. But whoever it is clearly doesn't want us to get that creature. And I don't know why. Yep, I'm not exactly clued in either. Luckily, there's been a bit of a breakthrough elsewhere. Chef, I've just discovered something terrifying. What's that, that there's 20 minutes of the movie left? Our monster can reproduce itself. What? The monster can reproduce itself? You gotta be kidding I've never been more serious in my life, Sheriff. However, it is at this point that we finally get the explanation as to why the evil scientists have been doing whatever it is that they've been doing. What better way to protect an exploitable area than a marine monster almost indestructible and whose genetic characteristics are as fearsome as the white sharks? Ah. A gigantic octopus with the intelligence of a dolphin and as monstrous as a prehistoric creature. You're mad. No, Walter. You're the one who's mad. I'll be honest, I'm starting to get a bit mad. So, the only thing that remains to be done at this point is to come up with a way to resolve this terrible situation and stop the Cretaceous monster shark octopus thing. Uh, But luckily, they have a plan. Oh, really? What's that? Fire. Those cells can be destroyed by fire. How are we going to burn a monster hiding at the bottom of the sea? Lure it to the surface. To the surface? Well, of course, Peter can do it with a tape recorder. Oh, yeah, and Peter can do it with a tape recorder, obviously. Anyway, they manage to do just that. They get it to the surface in some swampland somewhere, and they burn it with fire, and job done, we can all go home. So, yeah, if you if you haven't guessed already, I wasn't overly impressed with Devouring Waves. It's 
clearly one of the millions of movies that were made in the wake of Jaws to try and cash in on the newfound fascination with undersea terror. However, there are films that fall into that category that were sort of worthwhile movies in their own right. Um, it's just this one never really manages to string any sort of uh, coherent plot together, uh, which is its biggest downfall, really. And it, it really is kind of a shame. Um, there are one or two good points and, and reasons to check it out, I would say. Um, first off, there's the score from Anthony Barrymore, uh, which is in fact the pseudonym uh, for Guido and Maurizio De Angelis, who are an insanely prolific Italian duo who've scored loads of Italian B-movies, including the Trinity series uh, with Terence Hill and Bud Spencer. Um, but there's also Deputy Cortez, who, in the five appearances that he's got in the movie ends up being the most memorable thing that the, thing, that the film has got going for it. He's he's fantastic. Um, had a little bit of a look online to, to find out who the guy was. He's obviously a bodybuilder of some description, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit difficult to track down who this actor, if I can say actor, um, actually was, but he's great anyway. Um, the other thing I'd say is that while I've obviously been tempted to go down the road of mocking the film a bit, which is something that I tried not to do wherever possible, um... I think there probably is a certain value in it. I think it's definitely got a silly B-movie quality to it. Um, I can totally see why it was covered by MS3K, um, MST3K. And, yeah, I think with a group of people over a few beers, it could actually be an absolute riot. Um, as an out-and-out film, though, it is a complete mess. Uh, in fact, it is a little difficult to see how this is a movie from the director that once put out the uh, the wonderful Macabre in in fact in the same year. So uh yeah, check it out if you want a laugh, but um don't expect anything too coherent. I'm Dangerous Jamie. Joining me as always is Sarah, uh, and we're going to talk to you about why you should be listening to the Gorefest broadcast. Let's do that. Let's indeed. Why should they be listening to the Gorefest broadcast? Um, well, firstly, because it's awesome, obviously. Obviously. I mean, that's a given, or a given. A given, yeah. You, you can expect um, nonsensical puns like that. Yeah. Um, with, with zero context. <laughs> absolutely zero context. But also, we, do, we review horror films. Mostly, we review horror films, I would say. Well, yeah, that's probably the bulk of what we do. <laughs> yep. We also look at new releases, uh, top five lists. Yep. We cover theme months. Yeah, we do some horror news. Yeah, tell us about the theme months that we covered. Um, we have done Horror Behind Bars. Yeah, we did Clown Town, where we looked at clown movies. We did. We've done Trash Kings. Trash Kings, where we looked at the films of Fred Olin Ray, Jim Wynorski and David Dakota. Yeah, um, we've done a bunch of stuff. We've got Revenge Month in the works, Troma Month. So yeah, loads of stuff like that. Loads of stuff. So if you like horror films, you should probably listen to the GoPro Scorecast. Absolutely. Here and we're ready to believe you. <laughs> so that's not all you can get. You can also get extra super bonus content when you subscribe to the feed. Tell them about it, Sarah. Tell them. Tell them now. We do the Gold Quest Gorman Tree, which is basically us shamelessly ripping off Mystery Science Theatre. Yeah, basically getting drunk, chatting over the top of the film, and hopefully being quite entertaining. There are two ways to find the show. You can find us over at iTunes by searching for the new Gorepress Gorecast. You can indeed. Or you can go to gorepress.com and read all the great reviews, news, interviews, and everything all there alongside the podcast. Yeah. So come on, subscribe to the new Gorepress Gorecast. Tune in, drop out, stay spooky. <laughs> wow. I'd recommend this show to anybody. Anybody who's into smut. So, up next is a film from 1980 that, like Devouring Waves, is a post-Jaws horror that focuses on sea monsters and science, goes by a couple of different names internationally, and comes with its own slice of directorial controversy. Uh, Monsters was released on Warner Home Video in the UK, but was known internationally as Humanoids from the Deep. Uh, it was also known as Monster colon Humanoids from the Deep in, in Britain. However, the version that I hold in my hands today is simply titled Monster, uh, which is apparently because it's the racier, in inverted commas, version. Uh, now, that kind of leads me on to the, the controversy of sorts around the movie that led its director to leave the project, uh, allowing someone else to step in and, and put additional footage in. Uh, as the story goes, 
B-movie legend and, and producer Roger Corman, who was responsible for this, stepped in at the 11th hour uh, while Monster was being made and decided that the film needed more tips, basically. Uh, so Barb, uh, director Barbara Peters was asked to film some additional scenes that would kind of cater for this. Um, but unfortunately, Peters wasn't happy about the idea and decided to leave. Um, and that gave Corman no choice but to pay someone else to point the camera at a bunch of nubile teenage young girls running around in wet bikini bottoms. Uh, it's, it's a tough job, but uh, I'm sure they got through it. Um, to this day, sadly, Peters is a little bit raw on the subject of Monster. Uh, she was with Corman's studio for like eight years um, and did other things with them, but she's kind of... This is the film that she's become the most well-known for, and she still still is out there working and, and, and doing documentaries, uh, apparently, but, um, you know, people do tend to talk to her about this more than anything else uh, it, it would seem uh, in a recent interview with a website called ashenplayreviews.com um, she did acknowledge that the film does have a cult following and that there are many people that love it uh, but she did add that her, she herself believed it to be uh, dreck were a, a specific words so yeah she's not too happy with the way the film turned out um there were other issues around the making of the movie that probably didn't make it a great memory for her either uh she only accepted the job after everyone else at Carmen studio had turned it down uh, apparently the script was terrible uh and she was also battling cancer when she uh when she put pen to paper on making it um at the time also Carmen's filmmakers were non-union she was a member of the Directors Guild of America and she was being pushed by them to kind of step away from the film. Uh, unfortunately, she kind of had the attitude of, well, when I start a movie, I finish it. And as such, she was fined $15,000, which meant that she, she walked away from uh, from Monsters, uh, sorry, Monster, with, with no money in her pocket. Um, the film, however, went on to make $3 million at the box office. Um, it had a pretty healthy life on home video in the UK and in the US, um, which brings it here to my attention today. Um, the selection criteria, just to pull the curtain back, as they say, um, for Adventures in VHS, the book, and you know, by default, the podcast is that in general the films must have have at some point been present on the shelves of my own personal uh, local VHS mecca as, as I was growing up. Uh, that would be Video World on Pendlebury Road in Swinton. Um, if the film is between 1985 and 1989, it will be one that I remember seeing in the store or renting from the store. Um, however, if it is one from before that date, uh, from sort of 1980 to, to 1985, um, if it, well, 1980 to 1984 really, um, if it is one from before that date, it will be being covered because it, it can actually be seen on the shelf, uh, thanks to a very special photograph of the store that was taken in the early 80s that I found in the, uh, the Manchester Photographic Archives, uh, a photograph by uh, a bloke called Martin Parr that I'm, I'm hopefully going to be able to get clearance on using in the book, um, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, uh, Monster is a movie that falls into the latter category. It's a movie that I have seen on the shelves in Video World, but only because of this photograph. Um, and it's it's a film that, apart from that, I knew absolutely nothing else about. It was on my list of films to acquire because they were in that photograph, and I managed to get hold of a copy of it. Um, the tape is a pre-certification release, which means, of course, it was put out there uh, before the Video Recordings Act of 1984, uh, which insisted that tapes were labelled with a BBFC rating. Uh, however, this particular sleeve has been retrospectively labelled uh, as an 18, with the, the generic BBFC stickers that rental stores added to their pre-cert covers back when the law was introduced. Um, that said, it's it's also important to point out at this stage that running at 76 minutes, this is the cut version of the movie. Um, for the most part, the boobs and blood are all intact, but there are nine minutes of extra gore footage to enjoy um, if you do watch the uncut version. Uh, the 85-minute version of it is the one that was recently put out on Shout Factory uh, on Blu-ray. Um, so yeah, if you are watching a copy of it, there 
you uh, if you are watching a Blu-ray copy of it, or if you happen to have acquired it through nefarious means on the internet, um, you'll probably be watching a different version of it than the one that I'm about to watch. But hey, for the sake of purity, I'm going to be watching the 76-minute version. Also, at 76 minutes, that's great. I love a short film. Um, so yeah, just as a side note, um, this week, funnily enough... Uh, some joker put a copy of this film up for sale on eBay uh, with a buy it now a buy it now price of like ninety nine dollars. Um, it could have been ninety nine pounds. I think it was ninety nine dollars. Um, and he was kind of subsequently outed on the the VHS forums that I'm a part of as as a bit of a piss taker. Um, and quite rightly so. Ninety nine dollars it is not worth. Um, needless to say, this copy that I've got here did not cost me anything like ninety nine dollars. Um, and frankly, it's in better condition than the one that was that was being sold over there. Um, however, it is by no means perfect. The black case in here is a uh, replacement, quite clearly, um, and the sleeve itself has fallen foul of the disturbing trend of trimming, uh, which is where rental store owners would cut down the copies uh, to remove kind of the frayed edges of the cover that would pop out across the top and bottom, um, which just means that you've lost a little bit of the original cover, really. I mean, it's very minimal, and you can't, you know, from a distance you can't tell, but, you know, I know, and that, that hurts. So, um, but yeah, it's, uh, in this case, it, it, the evidence seems to suggest that the offending store may have been S. Woodward Video Exchange and Sale, uh, which is the sticker that has been applied to the full uh, to the to the uh, to the Fuji E90 tape inside, um, but the tape itself plays beautifully, so you'll hear no major complaints from me. Um, now, sadly, this particular release has no trailers. Very disappointing, I know. Um, however, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's got the sort of uh, the New World logo before it. It's out on uh, Warner Home Video, as I say, and United Artists. Um, the <clears throat> I won't read the blurb because it's quite long, um, and frankly, the the plot is fairly straightforward, and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, but yeah, so no trailers to actually go through. Um, the cover itself, just to mention very quickly, is beautiful. You should give it a, a little bit of a Google. The uh, Humanoids for the Deep and Monster posters and covers are effectively the same. And if you actually compare the two, uh, if you actually compare this to uh, Devouring Waves, they have very similar, um, very similar images on the front as well. They both involve a sunset and a uh, and a body and. Uh, yeah, they're just very they're very similar to to look at. Um, the movie, sorry, the video is emblazoned with the uh, the um, the pull quote on the front from the Daily Star, uh, which says this film is a cracker. Now that would normally turn me right off a movie. The fact that the Daily Star was uh, saying that it was a cracker, but um, ignoring that, we will proceed on. And as I uh, load the tape into the machine. Uh, to watch the trailer-free version of Monster. Um, I will play you the trailer for the movie, and then after the trailer I will come back and give my review of 1980's Monster. They're coming. Humanoids from the deep. A tidal wave of rampaging creatures surges from the dark and violent sea to conquer the earth. Maybe intelligent enough to perceive man as a competitor. Why the girls? It's my theory that these creatures are driven to mate with man now in order to further develop their incredible evolution. It's enough to scare the hell out of me. Soon the world will awake to a terrifying riptide of humanoids from the deep. We think we know where these things come from, but we have no idea how many there are. The Earth plunges into a battle for the survival of the fittest, where man is the endangered species and woman the ultimate prize.
run, any place you hide, any time you stop, they will find you. Doug McClure, Anne Terkel, Vic Morrow. Humanoids from the deep. So that's 1980s Monster, or Humanoids from the Deep, as it's also known, uh, directed by Barbara Peters and starring Doug McClure, Anne Turkle, Vic Morrow and others. Um, uh, the story is set in a small fishing town that goes by the name of Noyo, where dwindling stock levels have caused the local fishing community to turn to a, a large corporation uh, who they are hoping are going to come in and effectively save their bacon or their fish, if you'd prefer. Um, the town's kind of expecting the arrival of this new cannery uh, by a company called Canco uh, that promises to, to bring more jobs to the area, and it later turns out that the, uh, the the company is also bringing on some of the greatest scientific minds to come up with uh, new ways to encourage the, the, the dwindling stock levels in the area to, to pick up and rise um, so that there's more fish and so that they grow faster and that type of thing. Um, so they've introduced a certain chemical into the water that will help speed up the breeding and, and development of the salmon in the area and it's hoped that this will allow the town and, and this new canning business uh, venture to flourish. Uh, most of the locals are happy about it, uh, most notably Hank Slattery, played by Vic Morrow. Uh, however, there are people from the Native American contingency of Noyo that have voiced their disapproval, uh, namely Anthony Pena's Johnny Eagle, uh, who has, uh, has vowed to sort of stand in the way of, uh, of the cannery and, and, and stop the opening in any way he can. Uh, so when every dog in town except Johnny's turns up dead and mutilated one day, uh, it's Johnny Eagle that that wrongly gets the blame, um, particularly from Slattery and his his band of angry fishermen henchmen. Um, however, there is Jim Hill, who's uh, played by Doug McClaw. Uh, he's the man who will aim to sort of maintain the balance between the. Uh, the Hank Slattery character and, and the Johnny Eagle character. He kind of supports the uh, the introduction of the cannery in the area, but he's he's the level-headed one that sort of uh, that keeps things that, that keeps a, a, a balance to everything. Um, so uh, yeah, as the as the the story goes on, anyway, it starts to appear that the, there are stranger things afoot, and obviously uh, Johnny is not. Um, is not doing the things that would appear to be stopping the the cannery coming to town. There are actually other other things happening in the area. It turns out that the chemicals that have put, been put into the water, quite obviously, um, have been probably more successful than Canco had hoped, um, and they are turning a certain breed of fish into a monster humanoid fishmen from the deep type thing. Um, and these creatures want one thing and one thing only, and that's to mate with our women. Uh, which is wonderful. Um, so, yeah, things start to go bad. Um, Canco has a researcher in town who goes by the name of Dr. Susan Drake. She's played by Anne Turkle. And she teams up with Jim um, and Johnny, to a degree, and they sort of team up to get to the bottom of what's going on uh, and expose the stupidity of what Canco has done um, and uh, and help sort of eliminate the, the problem of the fact that there are women who are just being raped and impregnated by random fishmen all around the town all of a sudden. Um, <clears throat> so that's the basic story really. Um, it sounds quite silly, but it's not. It's it's actually a, an excellent movie. So in terms of a review, there's actually plenty to say uh, about the reasons why you should watch this uh, this movie. Overall, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. It's really enjoyable. I think it works on a real on a real basic sort of Carmen-esque B-movie B uh, level. Uh, but at the same time, there's also interesting subplot stuff going on in there. Um, I think the main thing to take away from it, really, is the fact that this doesn't feel like such a low-budget movie, really. Um, I mean, obviously, by today's standards, you go back and look at something like this. 
some of the effects may seem a little bit hokey, but it, it feels bigger than than it is. Um, there's some great sequences in there. Uh, there's the early scene where you see the dogs kind of being thrown about uh, before they're killed. That's great. Um, there's the reminder that back in the 1970s and 80s, women, particularly the beautiful ones, tended not to have any curtains um, and also tended to wear elaborate lingerie just while walking around the house. Um, it's during sequences like this that you really get to see why um, Monster has probably more to do with the likes of Halloween and Friday the 13th than it does uh, something like Jaws or Piranha. Um there's very simple scares in there that feel like they're taken right out of a slasher film. There's a, there's a cat scare at one point, there's a telephone scare, um, and that's then all sort of tied together with these sort of exterior POV shots where you've got someone outside lurking in the bushes that feels very uh, feels very the shape. Um, so yeah, there is a sort of leaning towards more Halloween than, than, than I would say Jaws in, in many sequences. Um, as as well, you know, even though this is a, a backwater town, um, you you can still rely on silly teenagers looking to to have something to drink and have some sex. Um, there's the whole sort of subplot, as I say, involving the the Native American uh, guy Johnny Eagle um, and the sort of ruthless mob fishermen who uh, the way they they sort of butt heads all the way through the movie, um, and then it actually ends up paying off later because um, Hank, who is the uh, the angry fisherman uh, played by Vic Morrow, um, he ends up uh, in a situation where you know his life is at risk, and Johnny kind of steps up and saves him. And there's a moment where they kind of look at each other, and you can kind of see Vic Morrow's character almost not wanting help, but realizing that. Johnny's the only help that he's got, and it's just just little moments like that that really really pay off. Uh, for the B movie breast hunters uh, among you, um, there's loads of lingering body shots on female characters, um, especially there's one before the first kill scene, um, and it, it kind of reveals that that the main thing that the monsters are interested in is sex, and that I was not expecting that going in. So. Um, to see a sequence where, which has obviously been um, shot afterwards, not by Barbara Peters, uh, to see the the first sort of full kill scene um, where you you see a sort of full frontal nudity and 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 a woman running away from uh, from the monster and stuff like that, and then to see her kind of pulled to the ground and effectively raped by this uh, this fish man, it was a little bit like, oh well, I wasn't expecting that. So it's at this point where things get really interesting and you start to discover that these creatures are probably actually much more humanoid than at first meets the eye, uh, being that they tend to remove the bras of uh, the potential mates that they have before having sex with them, uh, which, let's face it, we'd all do that, wouldn't we? Um, and yeah, it, it, it just makes it very interesting. I think a little bit later on as well, um, one of the uh, the monsters underestimates Miss Salmon, who's the local beauty queen, who under normal circumstances would be absolute fodder. Um, and immediately this fish man approaches her, and, and he kind of he rips away at her top, and her, you know obviously her boobs become exposed at this point. But she ends up like chucking some shit at him and escaping. So you know, fair play to the girl. I mean. It's an opportunity to see the girl's breasts and they're flailing all over the place as she runs towards the camera, so it's obviously done for very specific reasons, but I love the fact that she actually stood up to the guy and took the bastard down as well. Um, there's a very creepy roundabout scene when everything's going mental at the end. Um, there's a very strange moment where um, a guy who's trying to have sex with a girl using his ventriloquist dummy and, you know, don't knock it, it seems to be working for a while as well. Um, there's a, a, a monster that kind of comes into the tent and attacks them both and then there's the moment where the monster is attacking them where the the, the the camera shoots back to the dummy and the dummy appears to be watching, the dummy appears to be moving without the aid of, of an actual person with a hand up its back. It's very odd, it makes absolutely no sense but it just does give... Uh, the scene, something a little extra, something a little bit bizarre and creepy uh, to get involved with. Um, so yeah, I loved the film as a whole. Really enjoyed it from beginning to end. Um, it's way better than it should be, I think. 
Um, the characters are interesting. The story's interesting. The uh, the monsters are humanoids, whatever you want to call them. The the effects are good enough. The suits are good enough for this type of thing. But I think the thing that that impressed me the most about it is the climax of the film. The climax of the film is is a real battle. And when the humanoids sort of attack the local festival at the at the pier at the end of the film they really turn up mob-handed and it feels like they're coming up through the floors and they're attacking from the water and they're pulling the whole place down. I mean, there's no fucking around. There's loads of them and it... Or it feels like there's loads of them. The reality of it was there was actually, you know, two and a half suits that were used for this thing. But it feels big and it feels like they are under attack properly. The finale is a real massacre, like a battle, like a war. Um, and and you do come to realise that these costumes were quite effective. Um also interesting is by the end of the film there is no quick fix it's not sort of the you know the good guys don't just release something into the water there's no sort of magical last minute scientific discovery um when the humans do overcome the monsters it's because they outright kill them all um and you really get the feeling afterwards when the sort of camera pans back and you're you're left seeing the sort of smoldering embers of of what was a a, a you know a, a nice quaint small town um you really feel like they've been sort of left ruined by the experience as well it's very sort of almost apocalyptic some of the shots that you see at the end and it, it all just adds to making the film feel bigger than it needs to be and feel bigger than it probably should have been and um yeah no it's excellent so an absolute thumbs up for um monster or humanoids from the deep whatever you want to call it um the one thing i would say though is go and get the blu-ray because i have since had a quick look at some of the extra scenes that i hadn't seen that aren't on this vhs um and i would say they are way way more gory than than i thought they were going to be um so yeah absolute thumbs up brilliant movie uh definitely check it out Okay, so just to close out the show then, I thought I'd just have a little bit of an extra section at the end for a little bit of feedback and a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, I need to say a massive thank you to everybody who's not only downloaded the show and retweeted the the, the posts that I've put up on Twitter when, when a new show has gone live, but also massive thanks to everybody who's gone over to iTunes and left me a review. It does make a huge, huge difference that, and if you can uh, find the time to, to do that, I would very, very, very much appreciate it. Um, just as an example of how well that can work, I mean, the show's been doing very well, a lot better than I could have hoped for, so, uh, you know, that's great, but um, <clears throat> there are a number of reviews on there, and however it managed to happen, at some point in July, uh, the podcast was actually selected by Apple to, to go on their new and noteworthy page. And that's not the new and noteworthy TV and film page. That's the new and noteworthy podcast page. So I was right up there with with BBC podcasts and 20th Century Fox podcasts and all sorts of other stuff. So, yeah, absolute massive, massive thanks to everybody who went over and left me a review. Uh, Big thanks to Steve Dixon, Glenn Chapman, uh, Retro Ramblings, Cockney 01, Paul Watson 1975, uh, Dan Alderson, uh, Joe Hodgson, um, <clears throat> let me see. There's more. I'm oh, sure there's more. Yeah, there's 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 a load more people that have actually just gone on and rated the show. That's also excellent as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, as I say, thanks, thanks so much. It's been it's been great to get such a a good response for 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 a podcast that's so new. And uh, I hope you all continue to enjoy it. I certainly enjoy doing it. So um, <clears throat> yeah. Aside from that, I actually do have some proper out-and-out feedback that went to my email address and everything. Um, So, yeah, big thanks to Jonathan Hinson for sending me in some feedback. I'm just going to read it out here. Uh, Greetings from America... I'll start again. Greetings from the American South. My name is Jonathan Hinson, at jhinson77 on Twitter. For what it's worth, I've been listening to several movie podcasts since 2007, and this is only the second time I've ever sent feedback to a show. The first was Film Junk. Oh, that's nice, thank you. Uh, I've been listening to 35mm Heroes for quite some time. 
by way of Mondo Movie, Chinstroker versus Punter, and Outside the Cinema. Uh, that's all my favourite podcasts you just mentioned there, Jonathan, so nice one. Um, and was excited to hear about your new podcast, Adventures in VHS. For, uh, FYI, this is a book I will be buying as soon as it's available. Well, that's excellent, Jonathan. I hope many more people will agree with you and will be doing the same. Um, I've now listened to the first two episodes and I'm already hooked. My only complaint is that I now have to wait another month for the next episode. Uh, show format. In my opinion, don't change a thing. It's perfect. I enjoy listening to the movie trailers in real time with your running commentary and hearing those retro VHS distributor logo intros uh, that take me right back to my childhood. Being an only child where both my parents worked, our family VCR kept me company during the summer and I practically lived at the local mom and pop movie rental store. You also give some great insight into not only the film itself, but the cool technical info like the VHS box art, the quality of the film's practical effects, etc. The kind of stuff us genre film geeks love. Interviews. This is the aspect of your show that I think sets it apart from a lot of other podcasts and your first two guests were awesome, especially Lloyd Kaufman. Um, and then there's a section he's headed my question this is the part where my wife thinks I'm crazy my question for you is how do you go about finding these old copies of VHS tapes maybe a bit different here in North Carolina uh, than where you are but all of our independent independent movie rental shops have long since gone away I was able to grab a few great VHS titles from a couple of shops before they closed I've also tried the flea markets and local yard sales once or twice but I didn't have great luck there either I find that eBay is really the best source for me but I was wondering if you had any helpful advice you could share on VHS hunting also do you have any stories about finding a specific VHS title that you've been hunting for for a long time anyway keep up the great work and I can't wait for the next VHS episode Uh, but until then I'll catch you on 35mm Heroes That's peace out from Jonathan in Raleigh uh, P.S. Listening to the 35mm Fright Fest lineup show ra- made me really wish I could take a trip to the UK just for that festival. Sounds like a solid lineup this year. Barbarian Sound Studio and VHS would be my top two choices. Uh, well, again, thanks very much for that, Jonathan. Uh, that's a brilliant bit of feedback. Uh, just to address some of the, the points that you brought up there, yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for sending in uh, feedback. I know it's it's one of those things sending feedback into shows. It's difficult to get people to send in feedback, but you know I can't stress how how much us podcasters do appreciate it when somebody does because um, you know it's it's difficult and I make mental notes to send in feedback to podcasts all the time, but then I don't quite get round to it. But it really does make a difference because it just you know it it reminds us that people actually are listening and we're not just talking to a laptop. Uh, so thanks very much. Um, yeah, the uh, as far as the show format. Um, Obviously, this one is a little bit different to the last two. That was shaped purely by the fact that I couldn't lock down the interview. So I hope that uh, you and others out there aren't too disappointed that there wasn't an interview for this show. It just it just got to a stage where it just couldn't. It wasn't possible. There was a couple of people I had lined up that I couldn't lock down, and then I approached a couple of other people, and they had sort of they were saying yes, but can you wait until about then? And I was like, that's fantastic. Uh, but it just got to a stage where I was like, I wanted to get a show out before Fright Fest. Uh, so that I could do another show when I get back from Frightfest. So uh, hopefully that hasn't uh, screwed with people too much. I will get back to doing uh, interviews with the the next, not not necessarily the next show, but the show after that. Uh, it just depends how things fall, really. But it is important for me to try and get a, an interview on these shows wherever possible. Um, and to address your question, my question is, how do you go about finding these old copies of VHS tapes? Uh, there's a number of different ways, really. Um, charity shops are good. Um, eBay is not so good. Um, the main source of where I'm getting these video uh, tapes is through online forums. Um, I am a member of a couple of uh, VHS forums, uh, having been introduced to um, to them by a, a friend of mine on Twitter. Um, yeah, and basically when you go on there, you can speak to people who are VHS traders, and they're really nice people. Um, they don't necessarily want to rip people off. They just want to trade VHS tapes and collect and stuff like that. Uh, the main one that I use is Presert Video. Um, and yeah, it's a great place to meet people and chat about VHS and, and get some get some decent films. Um, when I first started this project, I, the first place that I went to was eBay. Um, and I learned the hard way that that's not necessarily a good idea. 
Uh, I paid over the odds for a copy of a VHS tape called Waxwork. Um, and when I got it, it was in terrible shape. It was virtually unwatchable um, on, on, on my machine. I mean, it was in pretty bad shape and I, I paid over the odds for it. Um, and then when I was introduced to this forum, I went on there and I started to talk to people and realized that you can pick up these, these tapes for, for a, a decent price um, and they'll always be in good condition or they'll, they'll usually be in good condition because the people on there are collectors and they're, they're people who look after their stuff. I mean, as I mentioned before with uh, Devouring Waves, um, you know that's a, a that's a copy of a tape that's been really well looked after, and even to the point where it has uh, a little bit of silica gel inside the, inside the box as well. So, uh, yeah, the answer to that is um, online forums. They're great, um, and also just keeping your eye out. I mean, I get a shiver down my back every time I see somebody like a, a sign for a yard sale or, or you know a jumble sale or anything like that. Um, I know a lot of people have look at car boot sales. Um, I've not had too much luck in that field yet, but I mean, you know, it's, it's about keeping your ear open for things and sort of turning up to these things and hopefully, fingers crossed, maybe you'll pick something up. I, I've picked up a couple of, uh, a couple of old school tapes from, uh, from charity shops and, and little things like that. Uh, but for the most part, uh, my collection so far has been populated by, uh, by other people, uh, on, on VHS forums. So, uh, I hope that answers your question there. Um... Yep, 35mm Fright Fest lineup show. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, if you ever can make it over to the UK, it'd be great to see you. It's it's a great festival for meeting people, and you will find if you ever do make it over to Fright Fest that everybody there is very, very, uh, very, very comfortable with one another. Everybody talks to each other, everybody goes out for a drink together, and you could end up drinking with. Uh, podcasters that you that you've heard talk a million times as as i've done or uh movie directors or actors or you know or festival organizers it's just a great social event and i love fright fest for its social aspects as, as much as i do it's, it's movie aspects um and yeah barbarian barbarian sound studio on vhs are your top two choices i'd probably say they're mine as well uh i'm very interested in seeing stitches um just because it's got Ross Noble as a clown. Um, and I'm also very interested in seeing the Maniac remake. That's mainly because I love the original and I'm interested to see what Frank Calhoun can do with it. Uh, but overall, I think Burberry and Sound Studio and VHS um, are definitely the, the ones that I'm looking forward to the most. Which leads me nicely into uh, the next thing that I wanted to mention. The next episode of Adventures in VHS. At the moment, I'm not entirely sure what it's going to be. What it's looking like it might be... Um, it might be like, again, another one-off. The week that I get back from Fright Fest, I'm thinking maybe I just knock something together around VHS, the movie. Uh, maybe a review of VHS. Um, I may source some um, some of the opinions of others while I'm at Fright Fest. I'll be taking an MP3 recorder, so that's possible. If I get the opportunity to speak to any directors, I may ask them some questions. But, you know, it's it's just it's just going to depend. I'm not too sure, really. Um... It sounds like I. It sounds like it's feeling like what I'm going to do is the next episode will be a VHS, uh, a VHS episode focused on that movie VHS. Maybe with the opinions of others. Maybe with the opinions of filmmakers, depending on what I can source. And then after that, um, I'll get back to the normal format of uh, focusing on one film and, and interviewing somebody associated with it. So uh, hopefully that'll be okay for you all. And uh, yeah, um, that's about it really. So. Yep, that was Adventures in VHS episode 3. If you do get the opportunity to go over to iTunes and leave me a review, it would be massively, massively uh, appreciated. Uh, other podcasts to check out, obviously you can catch me on 35mm Heroes. I would also say go and check out Watch Your Damage, which is the podcast that I do with Mike from Chinstroker vs. Punter. Um, you should also go out and check out Mondo Movie if you don't listen to it. You should check out Outside the Cinema if you don't listen to that. Um, and yeah, that's basically about it from me. So I will say uh, goodbye. I will speak to you very soon. And any feedback would be welcome. Noel at filmrant.co.uk. Uh, but until next time, thanks for listening.